As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read with me, turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew in chapter 3. We'll finish out uh, this chapter this morning, or at least read to the end of it. Matthew in chapter 3, and before we, before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, uh, we join with the words of the psalmist that we rejoice at your word like, like one who finds great spoil. Lord, there are treasures here, we know. Things working, uh, worth working to dig deep to discover. Uh, things worth celebrating over and holding on to help us to see your truth here. Press them upon our hearts now by your spirit and help us to believe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Matthew in chapter 3. We'll begin here at the end of, of where we left off last week, so we'll clip the end. We'll begin in verse 11, where uh, the person speaking there we'll hear is John the Baptist. So this is Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. I, again the I there is John the Baptist, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of God. Now, in this text, this is the first time that we see Jesus as an adult in Matthew's gospel. In the two chapters prior to this, we've seen Jesus as, as a little kid. We know from other gospel writings that here, Jesus is about 30 years old. So we have no record at all of what Jesus was doing both in his teens and in his 20s. I mean, those were good years for me. I assume they were good years for you, also for, for Jesus. But the gospel writers don't speculate about those years. Uh, they don't fill in the gaps or, or to try to fill in what happened during that time because their focus in the gospel is put upon Jesus' public ministry. And in his public ministry, it's not as if Jesus is sort of slowly, gradually ramping up into that place. It's not as if he's kind of fading into his work as the Christ. There is a clear 
decided starting point of Jesus's ministry, and it's right here. That after many years, the appointed time had come. And the beginning of his ministry begins with his baptism. We can see just how intentional Jesus is with this whole thing. The beginning of at least the section of text that we'll focus on in verse 13. You can see that Jesus uh, comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So this isn't just a stop off on the way to Wendy's because it happens to be there as I'm passing by. This is a destination that Jesus is heading to. This is a sort of commissioning of his whole work. So we want to take a good look at this moment of Jesus's baptism. Before we do, I know baptism can sometimes be a very complex issue. Denominations, good and faithful Christians from different denominations sometimes disagree about the finer points of baptism, you know, the timing, the method, all of those sorts of things. To add to the difficulty of that, baptism in the Bible doesn't always refer to the same thing. I mean, you don't have to be a scholar to, to notice this. At the beginning of the section of text, verses 11 and 12, uh, there's mentioned two sorts of baptism. John talks about his own baptism, which is with water, and a baptism that comes from Jesus when he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And boy, can you imagine if we baptized like that? I would both love that and be terrified by it. You know, we have a little baptism up here, and instead of having a towel to pat someone down, someone has to stand off with a little, you know, fire extinguisher or something. I'm glad we don't do that. At any rate, we're not going to dig down into the weeds on all of this, at least I hope not. We want to focus on the baptism here specifically to look at this occasion. So to frame this, we're going to divide this scene from the perspective of John, in which he gives a response in two parts. You may have already noticed it. His first response is John preventing, or trying to prevent, the baptism of Jesus. And then the second part is consenting in carrying out the baptism of Jesus. Preventing and consenting. That's our structure. Let's look at the first part of that, the preventing. Let's give some background here. First, a little bit of context on this relationship between John, John the Baptist, and Jesus. These two, this is not their first contact. It's not as if they meet at this Jordan River and go, hi, who are you? Their moms knew each other well. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John, were cousins or at least some sort of close, uh, close relative. We get their account in other parts of the Gospels. And John and Jesus were born within six months of each other. So given that they're family and that close of age, they likely grew up sharing toys, sharing holidays. Jesus might have even gotten the hand-me-downs from John the Baptist. This tunic seems old. <laughs> You know, and all the younger children, you know, know what that's like. At any rate, we know at least that both of these families were given prophecies about their kids before they were even born. They were told, their families were told that John 
was going to prepare the way for Jesus. So now, here we are, 30 years later, and when John is saying loudly to the crowds, there's one who's coming after me who's mightier than I, whose sandals I am unworthy to carry, John knows exactly who he's talking about. Now, he doesn't say Jesus' name there. He doesn't say, hey, there's a guy named Jesus uh, because uh, everyone else doesn't know who Jesus is, you know? Jesus who? Who who is this guy? Uh, Jesus isn't a public figure, not yet. But it's not as if John himself is wondering who is this one who's to come? Who is the one who's going to usher in the kingdom of heaven? It's not as if, you know, Jesus shows up at this Jordan River and John goes, "This, this might be the guy. I mean, he's got a Beard. He seems really holy. He looks like he's going to look great in pictures, holding lots of lambs together. I bet he's the one to come. John knows this is it. This is the guy and this is the moment that Jesus is the coming king, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. The time has come. So knowing this, when Jesus now steps out of the crowd to take his turn to be baptized by John. John then, respectfully, I think, says, no. No, Jesus. Jesus, you've got it the wrong way around. You should be the one who's baptizing me. He tries, at least at first, to prevent this baptism. Now, why does he try to prevent it? John's baptism, the baptism that he gives now to many people, he describes here as a baptism for repentance. That's what he's carrying out here, a baptism for repentance. And if you were here with us last week, just a quick summary, we talked about that repentance, that repentance is really a change of mind, a change of heart, a confession of sin, a, a turning to God that all of us need. We all need repentance. And then this water of baptism is connected to that repentance. It's a sign of the repented sin being cleansed by God, that the sinner is now washed clean. Baptism is then taken up as a visible mark of everyone who's in Jesus. Even long after the days of John, we know this. Jesus, at the very end of this gospel, famous scene in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go, make disciples, and baptize them, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that baptism shows them that these people who now have faith are part of Jesus, the baptized ones are part of his church with the covenant promise of God upon them. So we don't need to be baptized over and over and over and over and over and over again. Once we are part of him, we're part of him. That means one baptism is sufficient for a person that shows that we belong to Jesus and that his cleansing power is enough to save us from sin. That said... We know that the water itself does not save. 
The water itself does not wash away sin. That's something only Jesus can do. And Jesus does that not through baptism, but by way of faith. Baptism is a sign. So in theory, a a person could have the sign, but not the thing it symbolizes. A person could be baptized and not actually be saved. Or the other way around, a person could be saved and not be baptized. The thief on the cross was saved in the 11th hour, and there's not a lot of time to be baptized when you're hanging on the cross to death. What matters most, then, is not just the baptism. What matters is that we are in Jesus. So baptism, while it's not this automatic ticket into heaven, sprinkle a little water, dunk a little person, however churches do it, you know, and, and, and you're good. It's not just that, but baptism is a command from God that we want to obey. It's a response to God that shows we belong to him, the sign of the covenant that's put upon us that's not just for us, but for our kids as well. Peter, when he's preaching in Acts, after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, at the end of Acts chapter 2, says this, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So there's a tie here between baptism and repentance. Now, now that we know that connection, you can see, I think, I hope, why John tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. Because what's happening here with John is he's not just saying, Jesus, you're a pretty good guy. He's not just saying, Jesus, you're greater than I am. Jesus, you're better than I am. He's saying, Jesus, you don't need this baptism at all. If baptism is a sign of washing for repentance of sin, there is no sin in Jesus to wash. There's nothing in him to repent of. That's why the author of Hebrews says that that Jesus was in every way tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. So that's where, where John is coming from in trying to prevent that baptism. What is it then that changes John's mind to later agree to the baptism in this scene? What moves him from preventing to consenting? If you look carefully in the text, in the space between the change, there's just one sentence. One sentence that comes from Jesus, where Jesus explains his purpose in baptism, and that by itself convinces John. In verse 14, John's still trying to prevent it, and then we hear the sentence in verse 15. Let me read it. Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill 
all righteousness. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. If you're the kind of person that's got your own Bible and likes to write in your Bible, underline that last little phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. Because that is central in what's happening here. And after Jesus says that one sentence, John consents. All right, let's get to it. Get on over here. We're going to baptize you. John seems to understand what Jesus means right away. It takes a little bit for us to unpack it. What does that sentence from Jesus mean? What does it mean that he is to fulfill all righteousness? will help us, I think, if we see what it doesn't mean. Jesus does not say, this baptism is to fulfill my righteousness. As if there's some sin, something in him that's morally lacking, that needs fixing or filling up. John's right so far about his baptism. Jesus doesn't need a repentance for sin. That's the case for us, but not for Jesus. We've talked about that already. But it's not, I need to fulfill my righteousness. He also does not say, this baptism is fitting to fulfill your righteousness. Not just you, John, but all (laughs) y'all. This is to fill all of your righteousness, all of our righteousness. So let me talk about this just briefly. There is a doctrine, now that's a weird fancy word, there's a doctrine in the scripture that we call the Great Exchange, which would make a great movie title. Horrible concept, I suppose, for a movie because it's a doctrine, you know, but the Great Exchange. The Great Exchange is this, that the Christian person who is in Jesus is not just forgiven of sin. We are forgiven of sin. Not only that, we are also given the righteousness of Jesus, counted with the righteousness of Jesus. So there's an exchange that happens, a swap that happens. We give Jesus our sin. And then he gives us his righteousness. We heard about this earlier, right after the confession of sin from 2 Corinthians. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. He becomes my sin, I become his righteousness, which means that God looks upon every believer in Jesus, not only later, but now, not just as an empty jar, a washed jar, a cleaned out, dumped out, you know, all the sludge is gone jar, but as a jar that's full of the merit of Jesus. That's true. That's what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Praise God, the great exchange is really, really, really good news. We thank God for the great exchange that's given to us through Jesus. But... While that is all true, that is not what Jesus seems to mean here. Still true, not taken away from that. It's just not how John the Baptist probably understood Jesus. 
Jesus didn't say, this is to fulfill my righteousness. I need some righteousness, got to fill it up. Nor does he say, this is to fill your righteousness. I'll take your sin and you'll take my righteousness. He says, this is to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does he mean by that? Here in this context, righteousness is not just a reference to moral purity. Not just a reference to being clean or good or legally correct on all the laws. Righteousness here, as Jesus talks about it, is about a relationship that's aligned with the Father. So one scholar describes the righteousness, as it's put here, as conformity to God's will. So if we can paraphrase the sentence of Jesus here, when he says, this baptism is to fulfill all righteousness, he could have said, this is part of my total obedience to the Father. This is my obedience to the Father to do this. And when John hears that, he doesn't even ask twice. He just immediately consents, because John gets it, that obedience to the Father is central to Jesus' ministry. It's the very first thing we see is the mark of everything that will come. It's the starting line for the entire race. It sets the tone for everything that we see about Jesus after this, that everything we see from Jesus is all entirely aligned with the Father. All the healings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, his, his commands, his judgments, his blessings, even his death and resurrection, all of it is perfectly aligned with the will of the Father to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus lives a life devoted to obedience to the Father because it's central to who Jesus is. He talks about it several places, just you'll recognize this sentence out of John chapter 6. Uh, verse, where is it? Verse 38 Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So in other words, just as it was the nature of, of the first Adam, you know, Adam and Eve back in the garden, it was his nature, in his nature, to disobey the will of the Father now we see in Jesus, this second Adam, it is his nature to obey the will of the Father. Now, that was a lot to digest, I know. And most of us know this, I think, already, right? This is not new news to us that Jesus obeyed the Father. You know, Jesus obeyed perfectly. He's completely, uh, you know, sinless without even a drop of sin or rebellion in him. Many of us know this already, but let's just take a moment to ponder this. Obedience, this fulfillment of all righteousness, obedience is not just commanded by God. 
Obedience is in God. In other words, we see in Jesus there is a sense in which God obeys. Not just does good things, obeys. Does that sound like an odd thing to say about God? That God would obey? I mean, it does to me, I'll admit. I was hesitant to say it in here. I thought, is this true? Is this what the Bible teaches? Yes, it is. Okay, yes, all right. Because many of us, if you're like me at all, often think about obedience as something that we graduate out of over time. In some ways, right? We know what this feels like. Many of us think when we're kids, at least I used to, in some ways still do, one day I'm going to be big. One day I'm going to be big and I'm going to make all my own rules. I want to stay up late, I'm going to stay up late. And I'm going to eat that whole cake if I want to. Although now as an adult, that bothers my stomach to think about it. But there's that sense of like, I'm going to grow out of necessary obedience. Similar sort of thing in a lot of other spheres. I can mention tons. I'll mention one. Employees. These managers don't know nothing. You know, if I owned this place, I would not have to answer to anybody. There is a sense sometimes that as we climb further up the ladder, either in status or in life, as we age, as we climb up that ladder, the place for obedience shrinks. That's the impression that many of us might have. And yet here, in the very highest place, there is obedience in God. That this God, who is creator, Lord, the Almighty, you know, think of him as the, the big boss with all the authority. He makes all the rules. He can do whatever he wants. And of course, in a sense, that's true. God's forever sovereign king of kings, even the will of, of human kings are all in his hands. He can stir them as he will, steer them wherever he wants. The Lord rules all the laws of the universe, both natural and moral. Nothing is over him that he has to conform to, to obey. These laws all come from him. He's the author for our good, and, and God does all that he pleases. There is no one greater than God, and yet we also find obedience in God. This isn't just, by the way, during his time on earth, this is integral to who Jesus is eternally, not something he grows into or grows out of. This obedience that we see from Jesus isn't just a product of his humanity alone. Obedience is part of who Jesus is as God and man. That is, long before anything was created, 
before page one, sentence one of the Bible, when God creates the heavens and the earth, back before there was nothing else, when there was only God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, there was still submission of obedience in the Godhead. Jesus did not, at some point along the way, become the Son of the Father. Jesus is forever, eternally, the Son, willfully, gladly submitted to his Father's will. That doesn't mean that Jesus is in any way inferior or insufficient or less than God. This obedience is just part of his holiness part of his goodness. Obedience is one of the many perfections of God, which here means if it's the will of the Father that the Son be baptized, Jesus does so gladly to fulfill all righteousness. Let me wind this down with just a few words for us in relation to our own obedience. We know that this does not mean, I think this is intuitive, but still is worth saying, this does not mean that obedience is always good, of course, in every case. There are certain people, certain commands that should not be obeyed. There are many times where Jesus disobeyed the people around him. This sort of obedience here from Jesus to the Father is always good because it's obedience to the Father, and the Father is always good. Nor is this scene necessarily mostly a call for us to obey. Jesus is way more than just a model that we're supposed to follow. Jesus is the very Savior of sinners, to do things that we cannot do to fulfill all righteousness in our place. So this isn't just, hey, look, Jesus obeyed. You should obey too. That's not the point. The point is to focus on, highlight the obedience of Jesus, not us. But that said, this scene here about the obedience of Jesus does affect how we view our obedience to God. Obedience is not just something God would impose upon us because he can. Not just make us do because he's the boss and we're the employee, he's the parent and we're the kid. This is not just something that he is unwilling or unable to do himself. Obedience is the goodness of God that comes from within himself that he now gives to us as a gift. The more then that we submit ourselves by his power to this gift of the obedience of God, the more then he makes us like Jesus. The more we submit ourselves to obedience of God, the more contented we become. And that's a good thing for us. To close us, I want to pray, but uh, not use my own words. I want to use the words of the psalmist 
in Psalm 119, where he speaks about God's law and the goodness of it. So I'll read this as part of our prayer. Would you pray with me now? Lord, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Lord, would you make this true of us by the power and grace of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.